Hey everybody, it's Will here. Hope you're all doing well. Welcome back to another episode of the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, we have two very special guests. We got Plan B and Willy Woo both on the same call for you guys. We go into all things from Bitcoin market structure, derivatives, on-chain, their view on the market cycles moving forward, where they think this bull run peaks, as well as some of their more ideological views around Bitcoin in the latter half of the interview. Uh, please like, share, or subscribe if you're on YouTube, uh, this video or podcast, however you're listening. It really helps us get this content out into the algorithms, and we would really appreciate it. Um, and then just one other thing to keep in mind, Blockware is launching an indicator dashboard within the next couple of weeks. It'll be titled the Blockware Intelligence Indicator Dashboard. I'll publish it on my Twitter as well as in, my, in the newsletter. Um, and it should give you guys you know, the ability to track some of these metrics that I'm constantly talking about. Um, but yeah, hope you guys really enjoy. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the interview. Hey, everybody. We have two very special guests today, Willie Wu and Plan B. I don't think these guys even need an introduction. How are you guys doing? Good. And the third one being Will, who doesn't need an introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. Will, Willie, thank you very much for having me again. Thank you guys for coming on. I think yeah, we, we'll kind of start with like, what have you guys been up to lately? I guess we could start with start with Plan B and then Willie. Yeah, Um Last month has been the most hectic month of my entire life because um, I guess it has something to do with the uh, nading the 63 or 61, if you will. Um, and that, that caused like uh, 400,000 new followers in that, in that <laughs> month. It, it's absolutely crazy. And with that 400,000 comes a lot of questions, DMs, uh, well, a lot of business too. So um, everything is going 10x. Uh, yeah, well, since summer, basically. So um, the small setup that I had is uh, is growing and is increasing. Uh, the team is increasing. Business is increasing. Um, it's spectacular. And, and the price, above all, of Bitcoin is increasing. So uh, all well here in Amsterdam. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised you um, have open channels for your DMs. Um, I closed them long ago just so that I have time to go deep into the numbers, you know, because like, you know, as an analyst, I'm sure you understand as like as an analyst, it's, you got to have that quiet time. You don't talk to people just to get, get thinking deep and writing code and like getting down rabbit hole. Maybe that, that stops me from getting access to, you know, interesting new conversations, but um yeah like yeah so anyway what have i been up to i've been oh the latest stuff has been um like probably a few people probably understand that i'm more than just doing on chain i'm i'm a general partner in three hedge funds so um right now um i'm working on three um kind of market neutral funds of funds not necessarily market neutral some of it's directional but to just really looking at how to like build a sandwich of different um essentially instruments to create a new kind of instrument um like it's really um important for me to have something that's like a, a cash instrument um but yet can compete and and more than compete with um, the money printing, which is, you know, maybe 40% per year. So trying to look at um, getting a yield above 40%, which is quite doable in the um, crypto space, cash and carries like 25% just doing Bitcoin. And if you really know 
um, what you're doing within the funds, you can get much higher. So I'm looking at that. I'm exploring possibilities of building an instrument that can keep up with Bitcoin with much less of the downside, if any. Um, so really, a lot of the stuff is what I want for myself, but um, some of it is really pertinent to the, the funds that um, I'm involved with. So that's fun. And we can talk about that a bit later. I know that um, Plan B and I have been sort of like talking about, um, you know, Sharp and Sortino and definitions of risk, which, you know, comes into it when you build the stuff. Um, other oh, than that, nice, like, nice chart uh, on, the, on the blackboard behind you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, there you go. There's the normal curves, which are really shit. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I haven't just, you know, keeping up with the, the content stuff here at Blockware. I mean, we're growing pretty aggressively. So got that. Mm -hmm. And as well, you know, we're just adding on new members to the team, et cetera. So uh, two weeks ago, I had my first actual business trip, which I know I sound like such a baby saying this is actually my first time flying alone. So I'm growing up a little bit, having some... Uh, some new experiences via Blockware. So it's been a fun time. Uh, Plan B, I want to ask you, so you said you were running your own fund now, right? Yeah, well, um, it's proprietary fund, so with own money. Um, and it's it's based on um, a, a very inner circle group of people that, that have their money in that. So it's not a structured like a fund, it's a proprietary thing. Uh, however, <laughs> uh, we have started two months ago uh, with a... Um, a strategy that that uses uh, algorithmic trading, so automatic trading, and uh, those are running. and And I use the, that those platforms and the team to backtest uh, algorithms, and we, we we will talk about that later. Uh, to backtest algorithms in real life, and and the nice thing is we have the option to open it up for outside money. So uh, we already did that uh, two months ago, but very small, very small. There's, there's almost nothing. I, I think it's one or two million in there right now. But uh, we're probably are opening that up a little bit more next week for European investors and in Q1 for US investors. But we, we will not. I will not advertise it uh, very aggressively. I will not. Uh, we, we try to keep it small because, you know, if there's one thing I learned is that it has uh, very distinct advantages to be um, under the radar, not too big and agile so that you can move mm. in and out markets without being seen. Uh, so, so a fund should, well, it's always difficult. It's like go. you're in a speedboat versus a big cruise ship trying to maneuver, right? Right, right. Because if, if you're 1 billion or 10 billion, and, and you know, I, I used to manage with a team, not alone, of course, a balance sheet of 100 billion, you're very well visible. You have to, yeah, you can't, you can't do that overnight. And, and sometimes in this space, yeah, you want to you wanna switch positions or rate, rotate out of, out of a position overnight, especially the on-chain stuff. So, um, yeah, we're, we're aiming at, at keeping it under 10 or 100 million small but in real life so real money real um exchanges and on-chain signals um so it's, yeah it's it, it's fun but that's that's yeah mainly for for testing and building up some some um uh um what do you call it performance uh track record mm. uh if you will because one of the most heard critiques I get is well all those models those are nice but you know it's all backfitted to the to the to the historic data 
and yeah, how, how do you know it will it will go on for the for the future? I even get that for the stock to flow model. Like, yeah, it's it's a nice fitted model, but uh, how about the future? Some people forget or don't know that I made that model in March 2019. <laughs> so, so it's it's running for three years now, and and as advertised. So, yeah, it, it's it's that's one other thing, and. Um, so those, those algorithmic trading is something I did in the beginning of my career when I, I was your age, uh, maybe a little bit uh, older. And so I'm very, very excited to, um, to do that again now. But my big focus, of course, is on much longer investments. And that will, that will be proprietary. That will not be uh, opened up for outside money. Longer term, like longer time frame investments, you mean, or...? Yeah, yeah. So, so not not uh, uh, day trading or week or month, but um, well, at least one year or cycles. You know, right. I, gotcha. I, I, like like I did before. You know, it, I think it's no secret that I bought Bitcoin in uh, 2015 for the first time, and then sold half uh, after the all-time high in 2017. So it was the beginning of 2018 that I sold that. I think it was 14,000 on average, mm -hmm. 13, 14. So I missed the all-time high, which is okay, which, which I think is 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 very okay, uh, and then reinvested that half that I sold in uh, well just before I uh, published the article in uh, 2019, and I wish to repeat that with uh, my own money and 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 the friends and family's uh, money. So that that that's basically it. So that those are the uh, the time frames that we're we're on. Hmm. Now, Willie, funny, you, it's, go ahead, Willie. Sorry, you go. I was funny. It was like, it's, it's similar here in that, um, when I sold 2017, 2018 early, and then and I sold all of it actually. Um, mm -hmm. and then and that was with the very first on-chain indicators. Um, I used NVT. I, I just said, this is my plan. When this thing dead cat bounces, I will know whether or not it's a consolidation or, um, actually a dead cat because NVT will tell you the volume on-chain would drop. It was a dead cat, um, volume dropped, and so I sold everything, and that was the plan, you know. And so that was the first time I used on chain. I put it on my entire um, crypto net worth, and um, now I'm like looking at it, and no matter what's happening, because I feel like the the cycles are changing. We could probably talk about that later, but um, I've been my approach has been now a lot of this work in the composite fund of funds is like. Let's bring together a sandwich of strategies um, from cash, um, cash yield to um, directional where if Bitcoin's crashing and all the crypto's crashing, it can short it and can also gain. And you can composite all together and um, really minimize the risk in a down market, it should still climb. So I'm looking to, you know, I really want to get an instrument together that um, kind of like, reduces the need for manual timing of the market it just has a fundamental um, behavior that you can rely on that's a little bit more um well, a little less um timing related and you know i'll always have a big stash in bitcoin because um that's your sovereign wealth um if the entire system implodes you've still got your private keys so i mean that's i think the biggest um the, the biggest reason to hold Bitcoin yourself. Um, I think that, you know, you can invest in other very exotic stuff that can keep up with it, um, especially crypto related. Um, but like Bitcoin's the only game in town for kind of very against, you know, 
the total the the zombie apocalypse you'll be safe with bitcoin type of thing right so um yeah that's how i'm looking at it you do some like shorter term time frame trades right Oh yeah, I trade. I've traded from um, the sixty-second time frame right through to the multi-month using on-chain. Um, you know, like when FTX went online, I was one of the. Um, you know, I was a pretty big trader on there because I was trading sixty-second time frames. Um, back then, they had just really very smart of um, SBF there. He put up these very huge buy wall sell walls. They were like hundred bitcoins um, either side of it with no spread so you could actually just whack it with leverage and so with you know with at the time i had i think my trade account was a hundred thousand dollars and i generated 400 million dollars of volume trading the 60 second time frames and it's just fun but you get you know i was i was two things one was to get my volume up so i could get my fees lower and to just to um you know play around with those short time frames and here was an exchange where you could um, trade an $8 move and not get killed by the fees. So, um, and so that was my, you know, so I trade all time frames. I don't really trade the short time frames now because it's quite random. You're really g- gambling a lot unless you've, you're doing algorithmic high frequency stuff. Um, <clears throat> whereas the, the longer time frames, you know, right out to the Michael Saylor type time frames, which is generational. Um, that stuff becomes super, super reliable, right? If you can handle the pain, um, which like, you know, I think I, I tweeted recently, there's only two things you need to know how to get rich with. One is very good understanding about risk and second, um, a good awareness of how much risk you can stomach, you know? And so anyone can be rich with Bitcoin if they can stomach the downside and hold on till it reaches the other end, you know? So, you know, that's the whole gamut of, of um, different time frames. It's not easy to hodl, um, as I think, um, you know, it's plan B, definitely. When, when did you get into, um, when did you buy your first Bitcoin, Will? Oh, gosh, this is going to be a little embarrassing. Uh, it's August of last year. Oh, okay. All right. That's not bad. Um, a good entry point. It's right, yeah, it was literally right before we started ripping up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny, yeah. Whenever you buy Bitcoin first time, you you always feel you're late to the game. I, I bought um December of 2013 in the you know when it I think it dipped, it crashed to 600 from 1200 and I bought my first one Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what it was. I just thought, oh, it's like digital gold, let's have a shot at that. And um, but like I felt like, gosh, I'm so late, you know dates way back and you hear all the ogs talking about it in the white paper and silk road and all those um you know it's almost like mythology now to me some of those early stories of bitcoin so how do you feel like the market has evolved um i mean this is directed towards you but plan b if you have any thoughts as well you know how do you feel like kind of the the flow of capital you know liquidity has gotten better etc and just how the market's traded you know just talk through how that kind of evolution has taken place like I remember listening to, you know, Kobe uh, from, from Twitter talking about how, like, in the early days, uh, you know, Bitcoin would, would trade really cleanly based off of just basic TA patterns. Like, you know, you see, like, an ascending triangle would play out exactly how you'd expect versus now, you know, you have all these algos in on the short-term time frame. So how do you kind of see it, you know, as, as like, how's yeah. that process evolved? It's kind of my education to mainstream finance, really, Bitcoin, is to watch it evolve. 
um, you know, the complexity is much higher now and it's now starting, just starting to approach what I imagine is what you see in mainstream markets. Um, it's complex, right? You've got like hundreds of exchanges, you've got um, derivative markets, futures, options, um, you've got lending platforms, you've got, um, you know, thousands of different coins and they all come into the ecosystem um and maximus might say well the shit coins are shit coins but actually they are part of the ecosystem and they you can do some pretty interesting things with it and what goes on in one part of the ecosystem impacts the other so there's a very complex relationship like if you were to talk about the thousands of shit coins they you know like you could do statistical arbitrage where you're like um you're going long and short different types of really you know tiny assets but there's good yield in it. And that yield actually runs an arbitrage to the main markets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So it's very complex relationships. And um, there's like all these different parts in the ecosystem. You can sort of eke out revenue, profit, you know. And, um, and like, you know, I'd say 2017 was last year where it was very purist. It was all on chain. You'd see the huge volumes on Bitcoin's blockchain because everyone went through Bitcoin to clear their funds um, and they'd buy the next ICO or the next investment thing and or they send it to exchanges and everything went through Bitcoin. The volumes were huge. And then like long comes BitMEX and they're doing bitcoin-based futures and they introduced the perpetual swap and suddenly huge volume started to ramp up and with 100 to 1 leverage and then that was when you started to see some very very visible um what you say manipulation of the markets because you could now you had this thing where on one exchange you could manipulate the markets and you know you may call it manipulation you, you might say this is a full-on um no holds barred game of markets um where you know everyone's incentivized to beat the other guy and um if you've got a lot of capital you can push the market around so you start to see the bat patterns in bitcoin and you like you can look at before end of 2017 very smooth parabolics um very very textbook accumulation bands and now after bitmex zigzags bat patterns you know $3,000 cliffs from six, you know, you know it drops 50% in like two days. And then, you know, it becomes ro robotic. And so that's the, the difference I've seen. Um, and like now it's just more and more complexity with the ETFs, um, which are futures based. So, you know, you start, you start to build this um, like machine in your head of how all the different bits back onto each other. And then you just got to calculate um, bits, which is what I would try to do is try to add quantity to the, the, the bits and try and figure out what may happen next. Um, so that's that. Um, I imagine Plan B's got a different view. I'd be interested in that because you come from traditional. So you already have that understanding and you know what it holds as it's yeah. coming in. I was about to say, I'm, I, I don't consider myself a real Bitcoin OG, by the way, because I, I read the white paper for the first time in 2013. So I missed the first five years and those... Um, yeah, those seem like the, the real cowboy years where, uh, uh, where the big, big changes happened. But uh, yeah, I, I see the Bitcoin market as a very small market still. Um, it has grown, but I mean, when I wrote my paper, it was under 100 million uh, billion. So it was 60 or 80 yeah. billion. Um, when, I, when I started investing in 2015, it was even smaller. But and those are, that, that's like, 
like not not even a big big cap stock in the in the S and P five hundred. It's it's really really small. So for for an institutional investor, it's um, it, yeah, it, it was a game, um, and and uh, you know. I, if you're used to trade and invest in the bond markets and the equity markets and all the the, the very large uh, derivative markets, the, the interest rate swaps, etc., mortgage portfolio, structured finance, it's all in the billions and billions per deal. So, um, and and I've I've seen Bitcoin grown over the years. So especially 2017 when the the futures came. That was a first step, and and I want to tell something about futures because a lot of people are are scared about futures, and they think that they will be used by by governments to uh, manipulate markets, etc. But for me, as an institutional investor, it's a sign that the market is getting more mature, like like an option market. For example, I, as an institutional investor, I wouldn't invest in a market where there's not a a futures market because a futures market is another way of getting rid of your exposure instead of selling the asset you can go short the future and for example if, if a market is closed because some, that that sometimes happens right i uh i went through the uh, 98 uh, uh crash and then the 2000 crash with the ic uh, uh the, IT, the it bubble and then the um the 2008 crash with with large exposures and sometimes markets are just shut down uh, and then you're so happy that there's a futures market uh, maybe in another time zone where you can get rid of your exposure and hedge your positions so the but but there's one story i want to i want to tell about futures um that, that maybe a lot of non-financial people don't know but did you know that the romans already had futures uh for their olive trading right there were there were uh, olive farmers and olive hmm. oil and um the thing was that uh, there was one big risk for those farmers and that was um frost right the weather if the winter was uh, bad if there was frost then the whole um uh, olive uh, uh, harvest would be uh, would be gone so it's 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 a zero or 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 everything uh, game in in the spot market so they have to invest up front on the land work for the land and then uh, get the olives and sell them in the end and they have everything or nothing and then came the futures market so there were some rich romans that that said to these these farmers hey how about i set uh, i buy your 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 olives right now i i have to uh, give you a less a lesser price because of the risk involved of the frost so let's say 80 percent and the farmers were like yeah of course get, get rid of the risk you take that risk and uh, out, out, uh, 80% is okay. So uh, now a lot more farmers were willing to take that risk to to uh, to have the money up front invested in the in the in the land uh, with their hours and, and and make the the olives. And the the rich Romans that that did those uh, future future buys, they could of course spread that risk because they they do the same deal with another uh, farmer a little bit more south in the country or at another uh, country uh, altogether. And they can sort of hedge their positions where the farmer alone could never do it. So for me, mm -hmm. um, 
even the futures ETF, it's, it's a great thing because um, ETFs are a bit scared about Bitcoin and the custodian thing and the keys and all, but they know futures. So they're, they're happy to pay 10, 20 percent uh, premium um, and, uh, for a long position um, and, and take that as a cost. And but they don't have that risk of custodian and, 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 and all that. So and there's, of course, the other party that that takes the sort of. Yeah, risk neutral return of 10, 20, sometimes 30%. Um, but they do have the uh, custodian risk and they have to uh, uh, ship around those, those, uh, those bitcoins. But, but in a way, it's the same risk that's just being split between two parties. And uh, I think that's a, that's a great thing because that opens up the, the entire market for, for more players, more farmers, if you will, in the Roman uh, example. So yeah, I think it's, it's great. And um, we'll see a lot more um, uh, maturing of the market um, with, with spot ETFs, which will come with countries entering with central banks, putting it on a balance sheet as a currency. Uh, yeah, do, the future you, will be great. Do you think um, when, um, I don't think it's if, when spot, uh, spot ETFs are um, approved, and when they're approved in Canada, they're not in the US, but if they're approved in the US, do you think that um, a lot of the business will um, drop out from the futures ETFs? Do you think they'll even die because the contango rollover, the cost of um, maintaining that um, exposure through the proxy of the futures market, um, you know, it, it comes down to sometimes 20% per annum. Um, yeah. So do you think that, that like once a spot ETF gets... Um, approved that the futures ETS will be phased out or do you think they will coexist and why? Maybe, no, I, I don't think so. Maybe, um, uh, maybe I'm wrong about there, but um, I think some funds will be happier uh, also in the future holding futures instead of Bitcoins because futures are, they, they can put futures positions in their systems, their IT systems, their admin, uh, their whole back office systems are, are uh, built for uh, traditional instruments and not for Bitcoin. So unless they also upgrade their, their backend to, um, yeah, say, uh, uh, custodian with, with one of the big parties, uh, there will always be some, some uh, entities that, that prefer the futures uh, position because it's a very... I mean, the futures ETF, I mean, the front end for the investor is either a spot ETF as an equity yeah. vessel or the futures ETF, whereas one will be tracking less directly, the futures will be tracking less directly and it will involve you know, a much higher annual fee to keep going. Um, yeah, I think they'll, they'll stay, they'll coexist. Uh, maybe the spot, the spot funds will be more Bitcoin only and the futures funds will be maybe with some volatility harvesting or uh, mm, uh, so, some additional things on there. I think, I think they will coexist. There will be an exotic explosion of uh, fun categories. Oh uh, yeah, I guess because the futures will be a different instrument and it'll behave different. And whenever it behaves different, there's opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You could put leverage in there a little bit, et cetera. Yeah, you can short it more readily than like a spot. Like that. Um, yeah, yeah. So there, there will be different animals, I think. Yeah, no, that's it makes sense. What do you guys think about like the evolution of the options market? Um, you know, I've listened to Sam Tirigo from Alameda talk about this before, and he thinks that the you know the options market isn't quite large enough in size to have a major impact on the Bitcoin market, but over you know say the next one to two years it will. 
what do you guys, you know, think about that, if anything? Yeah, maybe two things. Uh, I think it's another step in the, um, in, in, in maturing the market. So it, uh, it should be there. It will be there. It is already there, by the way. Uh, but, uh, but small, like you said, and, and it, it's uh, a way of, of hedging your position. Um, it's also a way the comfort call writing for volatility harvesting. So volatility, uh, so the, 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 the high volatility in Bitcoin that is seen as something bad right now by traditional investors, that, that same volatility is an asset in itself. You can, you can go long volatility or short volatility. And uh, I, I think the classic mistake that, that retail investors make is that they, they do directional bets with options. You should never, ever, ever do that. Because um, volatility trading is the goal of, of, uh, of options and not taking directional bets. So um, you will... So, so, so pricing that volatility and, and um, making money of the guys that do directional betting, <laughs> that's basically what it is. Like with futures, you can squeeze out the money from, from people that, that take too high leverage, uh, 10x, 20x, 100x. Those are the, the, the losers in that game. Um, and and the, uh, the cash and carry guys, of course, are the, are the winners. And with, with uh, options, that's the same thing. There's a, there will be a lot of directional traders in there. Those are the losers. And there's a lot of uh, volatility harvesting uh, companies. And that's that's an entire yeah, different brand, a different investor on its own. The, the volatility huh. trading is, is beautiful. I'm going to ask you a question. You're probably the best person on the planet to answer this plan B um, because you trade options and you're an on-chain analyst. And... Like it occurs to me, you know, with the options, taking the directional bet with options. Um, and I know people that, you know, very notable people, they actually trade options directionally using your stock to flow model as, as the valuation timeframe model. But with on-chain, you can, you do get a direction. You do get like um, a time frame. you know. You do get like, like right now I'm looking, you know, deep, well, not deep, but like early to mid 22 looks like a bull season. So we can get these kind of six month out or more signals. Um, and so that's a directional bet and you've got a time frame. whereas an option is a direction, which is a price and a time frame. So it seems like those two match. And like if you've got good on-chain modeling, do you think that um, that changes your view of uh, like you shouldn't be taking directional bets, you should only be trading the volatility and harvesting? Yeah, no, that does not change my view. I, I think you should never, ever do directional bets with uh, options. I, I think mm -hmm. uh, futures are much better in that, uh, much more, more efficient. Because if you do directional bet with, with options, for example, now uh, the price is 60, the stock to flow model says 100. Um, you could look, look at those call options for the next couple of months, year maybe. Uh, but you would pay probably uh, 80 to 100% implied volatility. So even if, if, if you would be directionally right, you would still... Mm, gotcha. I, I don't have the, the prices in front of me. Paying an overhead in the cost of um, the volatility. Yes, um, it, it's like the contango, yeah. like the 
futures ETFs that that have to pay the uh, the base rate on the on the future the contango uh, spread gotcha. if you know, in, in the future. Gotcha. You'll have to pay the volatility uh, premium, and and mm-hmm. and that is calculated in with Black and Scholes formula, of course, or or, or even even more complex models. Uh, that that exact formula is is or that exact implied volatility is is traded and calculated in a way that um, uh, the, the ones uh, paying the volatility always lose or, or the ones that 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 buy the volatility win so it's uh, the chances of of making more than that volatility that's priced in are low that's what mm-hmm. I wanted to say but but uh, but then again it's 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 a world on its own volatility trading is the most exotic the 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 best way of especially well and, and and it might interest you really if you're looking for passive income volatility seeing volatility as an asset uh is uh, is is perfect mm. because that, yeah, that really. is passive income and uh and volatility is the the one attribute that bitcoin has of course and that's yeah. hated by a lot of people but there is no volatility in equity anymore or bonds yeah well, or we're running estate. a project right now where we're looking at that in the options market to trade the volatility and get yield um you know and these guys come from um you know the traditional markets so they were very well versed and they're just like you know big wide-eyed and going whoa <laughs> look at this market i mean yeah. i think the comment was Okay, so all we have to do is actually do the work and bend down to pick up the money. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Bend that's down exactly and pick it. up the money. Yeah, that's the same with a with a, a futures cash and carry, of course. Yeah. I mean, for a normal pension fund or life insurance company in this environment, with especially in Europe with zero interest rates, if you make four or five percent on your portfolio with limited risk, that you're king. You're king of the hill. So mm. imagine ten or twenty percent on a on a cash and it's the most is... conservative kind of delta neutral trade you can yeah, do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm like looking. The really good funds in the space can do hundred percent per annum. You know, yeah. um, they're the really good guys, and you know they're doing everything in the crypto. They're arbitraging, um, you know, DeFi to 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 traditional like to to centralized exchanges, um, and you know, like everything. You know, it's just like yeah. arbitrage across altcoins. So yeah. Anyway, so it is. It is arbitrage. Like yeah, you say, it's all arbitrage. Buy and sell in a guaranteed win. The only loss is counterparty risk and APIs going down. Right. Absolutely. And that's the the one reason I left the traditional finance because there is no yield to be made there anymore, and all the volatility and thus yield is is in uh, in, 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 in in digital currencies, Bitcoin. Uh, uh, yeah, no, like if you can, if you can get that down pat really well, you know, handle all the downside risk, like don't get screwed when all the APIs fail, particularly Coinbase. Um, and, uh, and um, like, and then like, and take advantage of the leverage available, you can get returns that are similar to Bitcoin with minimal down risk, very minimal, like, it's just, you know, if something breaks. Maybe I remember like, I think this might have been at the end of last year, you did a podcast and said something like really resonated with me. It was that it was you you were thinking about volatility in the sense of 
have you, I, a whack-a-mole is the game, you know, where you have all the groundhogs popping out and you got to hit them with a the little hammer. And you basically right. analogized it to this and you said, you know, all the holes have been plugged, but the volatility st- still has to go somewhere, right? It's not, it's not in bonds. It's not in equities anymore. It's now in Bitcoin. And so you have all these opportunities to harvest that volatility, like you said, and, you know, that kind of framework of thinking really, really resonated with me. Um, and then one other thing we were talking about, like the cash and carry trade. I think it's really interesting now that like the CME curve is in pretty heavy contango versus earlier this year, you had a lot of the more overseas exchanges, right? So a lot of the U.S. investors couldn't get access. I mean, they were doing the grayscale arbitrage, but they couldn't get access to, um, you know, this specific arbitrage trade, the cash and carry trade, just because of regulatory restrictions. So now that the CME curve is getting bid out, you look at like, you know, the three month basis is getting starting to get bid out pretty aggressively. Um, You know, I think I think some of that is from the the demand for the futures ETF. Some of it is just people yeah. getting exposure through the futures. But I think now you're opening up this whole other pool of capital in the U.S. that wasn't able to do this earlier this year. And it's free money, right? I mean, we're looking at, you know, the treasuries out, you know, less than 2%. I mean, they need to get yield somewhere. And here they can just, you know, get this easy, you know, just long the spot, short the futures and just harvest that yield all day long. Go you know, ahead. we saw... I think it was the numbers like maybe CME was doing 20% on cash carry and you might be able to do 30 or higher on Binance or FTX. And I mean, that why I viewed that as like there was a lot of Wall Street players that understood this trade and they could only trade it on the CME. So the yield was being extracted by um, traditional funds that had gone into crypto, whereas um Exchanges like um, Binance were more exotic exchanges that only offshore people had. And like, you know, here in Asia, which is actually, I think the numbers are that it's like there's more crypto money in Asia than anywhere else in the world. And um, over here, um, we're all just DGN traders, like DGN, like they're doing um, crazy amounts, you know, like a lot of the money that went into Ethereum came from Asia. A lot of the um, financing comes. So they're doing a lot of these primary rounds. Um, and less interested in the traditional Wall Street stuff. And so um, there's less capture of that, that um, free money, so to speak, um, in Asia. So you see that that's not being um, pulled down as much to equalize. Whereas now we've just had the, the futures um, ETFs coming out and that's just really, really boosting up the contango and the CMA um, and that's kind of bring it back into line, you know. And so I think that that's the that's the dynamic that's happened. Um, but yeah, it's just it's really interesting. Different regions do different things. Um, and probably one of the best things I did was to come to Asia for a bit um, and and take a look at the scene. Um, yeah, it's quite different. Yeah, I, I kind of want to pivot the conversation now to on chain. Um, so you know, okay. we've been talking for a while about like derivatives and stuff. Um, so Willie, I guess if we could just start off with like super high level, just what is on-chain and talk about the evolution of it since you were kind of the, the you know creator of it. Okay, so um, I wouldn't say I'm the creator of it, but like I was definitely early in, in making it popular. Um, there's, there's two views on on-chain analysis. Um, one view is a cheat code, you know, the cheat code, which is, well, it's an open source network and it's a visible ledger and you want to see all the trades that are happening um, which is exactly what it is. It's every single trade, which is one. In, it's not a day trader. It's an investor. One person sells out, one person buys in, and the coins move. 
right? Because the majority of this network is an investment network. It's a store of value network. When coins move, it's going from one investor to the other, or one investor to an exchange, one investor to OTCDS, one investor to a custody provider, you know? So those moves are very, very visible. Um, so that's like a cheat code. And then the other view of on-chain, which I think is now starting to die away, I think with the likes of us being more um, like um, proactive in communicating, the, the, the other view of on-chain is it's snake oil, <laughs> right? I think you've had that as well. So Over um, summer, we got a lot of that. Yeah, but I, I, always, I always felt that that was great because it would, um, the more snake oil talk there is, there's more um, like um, ability for the people who do use that, which is I do. Um, you know, I trade a relatively large volume using on-chain and like I, the, the more people doing it, the less um, kind of alpha I will get. You know, everyone's doing the same trade, so you're not going to make, you're not trading differently. Um, so, yeah, on-chain is really that. It's like um, a visible view into the ledger, and you're effectively looking for um, movements between investors and seeing their trades. And um, now I'm at the point where really the only thing I'm looking at, um, these two things I'm looking at, but the only thing I'm looking at in a trade is to essentially look at different views of demand and supply where's the demand and where's the supply coming from and where is it overwhelmingly um, a demand for space versus it's a supply space. Um, the other thing that I do is really, it's a great forensic um, tool. So if anything happens, you can look at it at on-chain and, and at least get a data-backed explanation of what, what could have happened or what is happening. Like when um, recently we had... China banned Bitcoin for the nth time. Um, this time it was banning the miners. So we had a mass exodus of miners and you could look on chain and go, oh, okay, there's a hash rate plummeting. Um, there's a lot of miners selling now, presumably to fund their migration to um, new locations. So you see all this stuff happening as well. And so, you know, often reporters contact me and say, what's happening? Because this, this, and this. And then you can kind of look on chain, you know, hundreds of charts and go this, this, and this is the signature of what's happening and you can wrap a narrative around it. it might not necessarily be correct but at least there's data to support that that's probable um so uh, that's that's on chain you know it's effectively um if you're trading equities an analyst might go into the the company and look at the books and talk to the the, the you know the officers in the company and, and talk about the next products coming out and um in Bitcoin, it's not a company. We just talk about, um, we, we open up the, the company, which is the network, and we look at what is the fundamental activity. And of course, that stuff evolves and changes over time. So you need a good understanding of um, Bitcoin as a technology um, and all the different um, parts of the ecosystem. Yeah, totally. The way I kind of like to analogize it is almost, we have x-ray vision of what's going on on the blockchain, right? And we can see through and, and track what, you know, all the different participants on that on that chain are doing. Plan B, when did you start getting into on-chain modeling, um, you know, in addition to your stock to flow and, and stock to flow X model? Um, and, you know, I, I didn't, I feel like I didn't really see you doing any on-chain modeling until earlier this year, but maybe correct me if I'm wrong. And are you still pulling data from your own node? Because I know Willie and I are mostly just using Glassnode, but I remember we had a conversation a while back and you said that you and a group of other quants are actually kind of sorting through the, the data on your own. 
Yeah, I remember that conversation. I, I remember saying that we were miles ahead of Glassnode. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I, I think that's true, by the way. But I, I, we were late. I was late in the on-chain game, I guess, um, mid late twenty twenty that I started. Um, of course, you could say that stock to flow is 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 on-chain as well, because uh, to measure the flow, I had to measure um, the new coins that are created in the the subsidy that are created in each block and i actually take the real data that's also why that model line is a bit wobbly a bit curvy right because i get a lot of questions about that but that's because i measure the actual blocks that came in in a month and the actual subsidy in there what you what you see if you do it is that there's uh, sometimes a stupid miner that that forgets to put the subsidy in there for himself so there's a block with zero subsidy and uh, all, all kinds wow. of weird stuff happening in the even in the stock to flow so stock to flow is is uh, so uses that that on chain um, input but in the beginning i took that from a website of course and but i realized there was a lot going on under the surface so um uh, yeah 20 uh, mid 2020 i started to really run a node um and, and extracting data from that node and i guess that's indeed a big difference between you and Witty and, and what I'm doing, because you're using Glassnode's data that does all that uh, data extraction, et cetera. But where, where I was maybe more nerdy in, 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 in trying to do that myself, uh, running a node is very simple, but extracting the data, um, uh, which, which is then the first step, is, is very uh, time consuming in that you need, well, you need programming. I'm, I'm a lousy programmer. Uh, I can do programming. I, I, I do it in Python, um, but I have programmers around me right now that are like ten times better, uh, like wizard programmers, and they can they can do it with their eyes closed in in ten seconds, where I would spend the whole day. But you need hardware as well. So um, you know the UTXO set. Uh, you have to simulate that UTXO set uh, going through time, and that with sixty four uh, gigabytes of RAM, you. You, you cannot do it. So uh, yeah, we're using uh, uh, Xeon uh, processors, uh, clusters of Xeon processors that that have uh, more than yeah, sometimes more than one terabyte of uh, RAM to to do this in a uh, timely fashion. And that's that's a that's a very exciting part. But then the set, that that would be the first step, right? Getting the data off. You guys um, let Glassnode do it, and then go to the the second step directly, and that's the info that you get from there and, and looking at the metrics and making charts and doing correlations. That's of course the, the fun part. Right. And, uh, but for me as an investor, um, I am actually more focused on the next two steps because I see this as a four step process, data information charts. And that, but the next step is making trading rules. So not just, just eyeballing correlations or making charts, etc. But making rules, if uh, metric one is below X, uh, buy, and if metric B is well, sell, and then, and then the fourth step is backtesting those those trading rules, see how they work in the last year, three years, five years, ten years, and and then you you, you come into this world of risk risk return that that uh, uh, Willie has been talking about in, in earlier podcasts, and I hope we, we can talk about it right now as well. But that, that has been the focus all my life in traditional investing, risk and return. What are your um, 
um, rules, investing, rotating, or trading rules, and you just use the on-chain signals for the input. But we're we're spending like most of the time making trading rules, uh, also letting the computers find a grid search those rules, right, and then uh, simultaneously backtest all those rules against data. Uh, historic data of at least one or two years, uh, but, but preferably three, five or more years out. And, and then the entire game, once you have the data and your metrics and the rules, the entire game becomes uh, optimizing risk and return. And how do you do that? Because do you use sharp ratio? No, that that will fail. Well, it's not the best. Do you, do you use drawdowns and Shortino? Like Willie said in the other podcast, probably not the best one either. So how do you do that? And that that is the magical sauce. And uh, I think the yeah the the area that that I'm very specialized in, and maybe um, um, a little bit beyond the the pure glass note. Uh, and yeah, and yeah, it just it just really does come back down to risk, right? It's like defining risk in a very specific way. Yes. Um, yes. Like making money is all about defining risk. Uh, I've come, I think it all just ends up like that. Um, hey, I'm interested in, like you're saying that you think you're a step ahead of Glassnode and can you expand on that? It was like, what are you doing that without divulging, divulging your, um, divulging your um, trade secrets? Like um, what is the, the um, approach or why you think it's um, ahead of Glassnode? Um, well, yeah, maybe that's that's a bit a bit rough to say, but but um, I see Glassnode is, is really putting a lot of energy in the in the putting the data out, making it available, making it clean, putting mm-hmm. also some 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 analysis on there, but but not doing uh, trading rules, of course, because that's not their business. So they stop at, no, at extracting the data, making the metrics, making them available, and and their business model, of course, is selling those those that data that people like you and me, by the way, because uh, we have a Glassnode uh, uh, subscription as well. But um, the fact that, that uh, it, I see it as a, as a four-step process, the fact that you, you simultaneously do trading rules and backtest all that stuff, um, you get, you see that, that second step, that, that that see that you see that as a, a feature extraction uh, step. Uh, that's a term. Mm. Feature extraction is a, a term from AI. Uh, I did that in my younger years, by the way. Neural nets, genetic algorithms, etc. So a fe- feature extraction from the data is, um, yeah, is a way of structuring that data that it's it will be it can be used for for an ai or or uh, a trading rule optimizer a grid optimizer grid searcher uh that optimizes that risk return parameter in your backtesting so so we're very f- focused in looking at the features that that data gives us and and um gotcha not yeah yeah so, so- i see yeah I see the difference. Who's like uh, Glassnode is one uh, one dimensional business that provides data um, actually e- effectively to funds that um, like are uh, like charged with creating these rules and trading. And 
I guess one of the advantages you have is you have a full vertical integration. So you're always going to get a lot tighter communication between each of these, these layers. Um, whereas right. when you're using Glassnode, you're, um, you've got good data about like, um, it's one step removed from full vertical integration of each layer, which I, I always saw that as a strength of what you're doing. I mean, I, I messed around with the, um, the base um, data and it was like, and this was like, gosh it was like 2015 or 2016 it was like oh gosh this is going to take heavy lifting like, like just indexing it and i was doing it on my laptop at the time indexing it and just running queries across the index it was taking minutes 10 minutes at a time and like they were like very efficient queries and once you got into complexity it was like oh forget it you'd be waiting for days so True. there's a lot of data to move in into search. Sometimes like I want to make certain metrics, but I need access to that base level data. So I'll have to like message, you know, Raphael or somebody, but you know, I can't actually just, you know, take a ratio of it or, you know, compare something or do standard deviation or all these kinds of things. Like I'm, I'm I can only, I'm limited to only being able to do things on top of the metric that they've already put out. Whereas, you know, like you said, Willie, plan B has that advantage to go into the base level and, and still be able to extract different metrics in that sense. That's yeah. it. That's it. And I imagine you guys are very close contact with Glassnode. Like, ah, can you make this? Ah, can you make that? Uh, give me, give me one level deeper information. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it, it's the vertical integration, I guess. Uh, but, but in the end, we're all doing the same thing, right? It's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, data and but yeah, in the end, like Willie says, it all comes down to risk measure. How do you measure the risk and, and how do you optimize basically on those those two criteria, risk and return? Why is a certain strategy better? And the whole um, point is not to to do overfitting there, right? You can you can really maybe prevent a a uh, 2018 crash. Um, but then totally miss the next crash because you, your whole system memorizes mm. and not generalizes, but memorizes the uh, 2018 crash. And how do you stop a, an AI or, or a statistical system in, in general uh, from, from overfitting a curve and, and extracting exactly what is useful for the future um, yeah, and not more? That's a huge challenge. I mean, I, I, that's, my, that's my experience is if you build a rule set algorithms and train it on past data, it just loses its tune. It's almost like you got to retune it as more data comes in. Cause, and in particular with Bitcoin, um, well, I was doing technical rule sets for technical trading and um, they got pretty good. You know, it was like 60% reliable per trade, which is very good. Like you can make money off 50% if you got good risk management. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, like, like Nina would lose its tune because the, um, the trading charts of Bitcoin, the price charts keep changing as it evolves and more sophisticated traders come in and different kind of strategies people are playing off against each other. It really changes the price um chat and um on chain is no different and that, i think it's even more so like on chain um data keeps changing you can see like recently like this year um, we're in a regime where the volume is completely dropped off because we're moving things on derivative exchanges and on layer twos and and even onto altcoins um and where Bitcoin used to pass through, Bitcoin doesn't. So all that stuff changes and it becomes really challenging to try and train 
um, these rule sets with a very you know shifty moving ground underneath you. So yeah, it's yeah. a challenging, um, very challenging um, task there to do solid rule sets that um, can you know span off into the future for a reasonable length of time. Yeah, and I also think about it as all these different metrics that we have available are basically like a toolkit, right? And you kind of have to know when to pull out which metric. And so that, that can be a bit of a challenge at the time. It's just understanding, understanding the environment that you're in and which tools are kind of appropriate to, to use. Um, and that kind of actually segues into the next topic I wanted to cover is let's just kind of talk through the anatomy of a Bitcoin full market cycle. And then eventually we'll get to uh, your, your differing opinions on, on the structure of the cycle moving forward. But historically, what have been kind of the behaviors or investor behaviors on chain that have resembled a bear market and a bull market and kind of break down how you guys view the anatomy of that whole process? I guess we can start with, with plan B. Um, yeah, to be honest, I view the on-chain, I think the on-chain analysis for me at least is is most valuable in identifying tops and bottoms so identifying fomo transactions if you will at uh, around the all-time high and panic liquidation kind of reactions or, or transactions in um, a bear market the bottom of a bear market so and you know it when you wait when, when you when you get there right so so i i could not uh, say what the top of the market will be right now because we're not in a FOMO situation. Um, so at least I know we're not in a FOMO situation. So it it is not the top. Uh, but but I don't know when the top is. And that's yeah, the, that's of course the difference with the stock to flow, more fundamental model uh, that has gold data and stuff in there. That you you can very very roughly say something about the level. Yeah, you could expect the next, uh, the next, the next uh, Bitcoin price level to be, but but on chain, um, yeah. So so at least I can say we're we're not in a bear market right now, and we're not and we're not at the FOMO end of the bull market. So we're not. We must be somewhere in between. There's several technical indicators that also uh, say the same thing, and um, yeah. So 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 given that fact, I would. Um, extend the, the, the current uptrend up with uh, a couple of months and that brings us yeah well I, I mentioned the numbers before of course the, the next two months are very uh, well known I think uh, we will we will end in the in the roughly at 98 at least uh, this month already which is huge nobody believes it and then 135 in December at least. And if I can just go, cut, go, cut you off for one second, sure. I just wanted to say, like, I think I think kind of what you're getting at and something that I've been thinking about lately is you have a lot of people come to you and say, when is the top? Right. Like, what's the exact price and, and what's the yeah. time? But it's not that with on chain, what you're really looking for is what are the behaviors that yeah. resemble euphoric behavior from these market yeah. participants? Right. I think that's what you're trying to get out here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm not interested in the top at all. So I, I don't know when it is. Yeah, I, when we get there, I know it, but I don't know where it is. I'm not interested in that because I know it will be a, probably a, a, a one-minute spike, right? <laughs> I cannot trade it. I cannot sell or buy at that at that uh, uh, price level. I'm more interested in the general level where, where it hoovers around, where it where it will. It'll, yeah. So so no, it's exactly like you say. So, um, 
but still, I think uh, we'll go on in Q3, Q1, because that's another thing you um, you can can measure from um, from on chain. You can see the shortage that we're all talking about. How many bitcoins are there? And and you guys are really looking at at coins at exchanges and are they leaving exchanges to cold storage or coming at exchanges? Uh, but I'm I'm looking at it at, at, at an on-chain level. And then you see um, you see that shortage building to a moment where it where it pops, and uh, we're we're still with, without telling what I'm looking at exactly, but we're we're still months uh, away from that popping moment. And um, uh, so I would say the top is at least three to six months, maybe longer away. Uh, and and I want to make that very clear because I when when I type Plan B in Google. Uh, the first three things you see on uh, in the search results are big crashes coming. Plan B says the market will crash. Crash imminent. <laughs> I don't know how they get, how they how these uh, outlets get uh, come to that and, and attach my name to it. I really don't think a crash is coming. I think we'll see a a bull market that goes on for at least uh, six months and bring us in the hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. I wouldn't even be. Exp- Surprise with 500,000 Bitcoin uh, lay, uh, in, in early uh, 2022. Uh, but when we get to the, the, the sketchy part, when the FOMO uh, transactions uh, uh, flow in and you, you can detect those transactions, they are very distinct, then um, well, we have to all uh, be a little bit more uh, alert, right? One of the things you talked about was the supply shortage. And you know, I think... I've stopped looking at the exchange balances alone um, at kind of the forefront of my analysis. Cause a lot of that has to do with just like the entity clustering that Glassnode does. And they don't, they had, you know, Willie brought this up to me, actually, they, you know, they don't have a couple of the major, you know, spot exchanges, but what I have really been weighing heavily in my analysis is this metric that Glassnode's created. And actually, once again, Willie suggested this to Glassnode is a liquid supply. Uh, and so over summer, I messaged Willie and I was like, hey, man, have you ever run the ratio of illiquid supply to highly liquid and liquid supply? And so the way this is defined with Glassnode is these are entities, so forensically clustered addresses that take in and don't sell at least 75% of, of their coins, right? So, you know, for every four coins they take in, they hold at least three of them. And then the highly liquid guys, they're, you know, they're selling, you know, over 75% of the coins that they take in. So they're only holding 25%. The liquid guys are 50-50. So when you run the ratio of the illiquid to the highly liquid and liquid guys, you get this metric we created called illiquid supply shock ratio. And this is actually one of the main metrics I, that I think we both use, but I don't want to speak for Willie, but for me, I used to call that reversal over the summer because you saw that these long-term guys were locking up coins as price was grinding down. So you kind of had this, this bullish divergence per se. Um, and so seeing that, that metric has, has been one of the main things to, to kind of look at that. We're talking about supply shortage. Um, and then also Willie, once again, ran a ratio of the long-term guys to the short-term guys. So in, instead of defining these entities by their spending behavior, we're just solely looking at the amount of time that coins have been held in their wallet. So Glassnode uses 155 day cutoff, which is five months. And the reasoning is because they've done like some statistical studies as, you know, that's kind of the, the where the likelihood of those coins being sold drops off the heaviest. 
um, you know, as a coin is held in a wallet, the longer it's held in a wallet, the less likely it is to be sold. But at that five month threshold, they found that that's kind of where that likelihood really drops off pretty extensively. And so when you run the ratio again of the of the long term guys to the short term guys, you get this long term holder supply shock ratio. Um, and so that's really interesting as well, because we've reached like basically all time highs. I think we had reached a previous, uh, you know, higher, uh, higher level in the metric in like 2011, but in, in recent, in recent Bitcoin history, we're pretty much like uh, we reached unprecedented levels. You're now starting to see that roll over, but there's just another way of showing like, you know, you had these, these longer term investors that really locked up a lot of supply and it's natural bull market behavior. Now you're starting to see them distribute again, you know, in bear markets, you you see the long-term guys, you know, buy pretty heavily. And then in bull markets, you see them distribute their coins as the, as the short-term speculators come in and buy their bags, basically the whole way up. Right. But it's been really interesting. And, and um, you know, I think this is, this has been part of my thesis as well as, as to why this bull market probably extends out till next year is now you've had this, this behavioral, you know, trend that you usually see at the bottom of a bear market where you have what, what, uh, Willie posted this chart a couple of weeks ago. It, you know, it says peak hodl. That's basically showing where the long-term holder supply shock ratio kind of peaks out, right? And we've reached that in the middle of a bull run. And so that's completely different market behavior than what we've traditionally seen, because usually you see that peak hodl in the in the you know midst or or uh, bottom of the bear market. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. You know, and and also you know you can look at the exchange balances, but I think also in just the behavior of investors, you're definitely seeing that supply shortage per se. Yeah, we're we're definitely peaked, but um, it has peaked and now it's like moving sideways and almost down. And um, that movement downwards means these long term guys who bought. Um, for the long haul are starting to sell out um, and you only see that in a strong rally and I guess the strong rally has been enough for them to start to divest in their um, of their their exposure um, like you know the last time we saw these guys divest was in the run-up from October last year to you know the heights of 60,000 they started to divest um, and unload because they were making you know um, 2x, 3x, eventually 6x on their money. And um, they divested into a new generation of holders, which were buying it up at the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, even $60,000 range. And so those are the now our new um, you know, long-term holders who have held for more than five months. And as we see this run up that we're thinking into um, next year, um, through into the first quarter at least, um, it'll be these guys that'll be divesting and selling to the next generation of long-term holders. So the cycle ret- repeats a lot, um, but we're at that um, moment where, where the long-term guys that just bought in on the, the start of this year rally um, are fully loaded up and they're at maximum amount of coins versus the rest of the people and they're ready to sell. Um, uh, ready to sell and um, into this next rally. Um, so, and which is a really interesting um, thing. You, it's healthy because you get this sort of new participant in, they accumulate and they sell. And every one of these cycles, you'll get um, further distribution of the coins and a wider and wider um, distribution, a higher or a better genie coefficient, which is a measure of distribution of. The wealth within um, the network or within a society, um, which is what we're really after if Bitcoin's going to succeed as a monetary base. So, you know, this is, you know, we're looking at it as 
is um, trading signals, but someone more fundamental, um, maybe an economist would be looking at that. It's like, these are the cycles of distributions of coins. Like someone buys, makes some money, they sell and it gets further distributed. And, um, and I, I've, I've got a chart, like I've been trying to track the whole ecosystem to see how well the stuff is being distributed. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a 12-year trend of more distribution and a lot of people say the whales are dumping, you know. And um, actually the whales always dump and they dump into every bull market rally because um, why wouldn't you when you're worth $100 million or more of net worth? Because Hey, Willie, can I yeah. ask a question here? Sure. Because that's what, that's what, that's one thing I um I wanted to know. Can you in that in that ratio and in, in that analysis, can you distinguish between a whale actually selling or a whale um, uh, reorganizing uh, reorganizing his wallets? So, for example, I know for myself is if if, if uh, you have a lot of bitcoins in one address. And the Bitcoin starts to rise, six x or ten x. Uh, all of a sudden, there's there's a lot of money in one one string of numbers, and you have that urge uh, to to reorganize that into ten. You distribute that in ten, but those ten addresses are are your own addresses. You, you, it looks yeah. really like well, this is not address analysis. This is reliant on forensic clustering by Glassnode. I think. Um, Chain analysis do this very similar stuff. Um, so we're looking at the address spaces that show interaction between each other. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that that's all taken into account. That's actually how we're measuring effectively the closest thing we have Gini coefficient. I'm still asking the guys at Glassnode to give me a little bit more data so I can calculate Gini coefficient over time. But like mm -hmm. um, the, yeah, this is definitely taking into account the that. Um, you know, multiple wallets owned by one participant. Um, so, yeah. Um, and actually, I do another thing where I'm measuring what the whales are doing because the whales are like selling all the time. But they're also, interestingly, um, very experienced and they do take the odd speculation where they stop selling and they buy. And we saw that um, as we ran up above um, the 30,000 lows recently, um, they stopped selling and they started buying. And we, there's only a few um, events in the history of Bitcoin where they stop um, selling and they start buying. And they're always followed by a multi-month bull run. Um, so yeah, but the, the most part, like the whales are selling. Whales, anyone who owns more than a thousand Bitcoins, then you've got another category which owed more than 10,000 and they're like almost extinct. They're almost depleted. Um, and we filter more, out exchanges and everything. Exchanges, you know, Grayscale ETF, all these other outliers, we're filtering those out to get down to the individual whale investors. Um, so, yeah, like this kind of study requires a, a knowledge and it's beyond on-chain. You need to look at, you know, public filings or public companies and take, you know, um, the micro strategy out of the equation because it's a publicly owned company owned by shareholders. And um, so... You know, it gets onto that. So I've I ended up doing a lot of that work as well. So there's a lot more than just on chain. The ecosystem's getting to a complexity where you need to actually understand how it all works together, and you you end up needing data outside of the on chain world to at least look at this kind of stuff. Um, if I'm going to like look at what you know, we we often see 
these um, faulty analysis, um, faulty analysis by analysts doing on chain, and they go, the whales are selling, um, and they look at address space analysis, or they might even look at entity analysis, but they fail to recognize that the biggest whales in the space are Binance, Coinbase, Kraken. And um, when they're saying the whales are selling, it's actually um, inventory depletion as everyone's buying coins. And it's not the whales are selling, it's just coins are leaving exchanges. So you really have to understand what's happening within the ecosystem beyond just that on-chain view. Um, you need to know which, which wallets are address, um, exchanges and you need to account for it. Um, and sometimes they're not, you know, in the, ex in the exchange world, we, we do have on-chain signals, but um, no one's really identified MicroStrategy's wallet. So we just have to look at their corporate filings and Michael Saylor's tweets, for example. Um, so, yeah. Clay mm -hmm. B, do you do any like heuristics around trying to like identify exchanges or different entities? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A bit like uh, Willie is saying, it's a, it's a tedious job, by the way, but uh, you know the, uh, the main addresses from, from exchanges, of course. You know, um, and you can uh, um, algorithmically indeed uh, recognize, of course, if, if a transaction has like uh, 100 inputs and 100 outputs, that's, that's uh, you know, <laughs> so, so you can cluster all those, those uh, transactions and, 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 and run them by known address lists. Uh, yeah, we, we certainly do that. Makes sense. All right, next topic I want to bring up is just views on the cycle moving forward. So we kind of talked about the anatomy, right? And, and now I think it, it gets a little interesting because Willie, I know you kind of stand in the, in the camp of this is likely the last cycle, whereas plan B, you think we, we have another bear market. So Willie, I guess we'll start with you and kind of lay your case out for, for what you think. Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, you know, um, we're very accustomed to this four year cycle. Um, a four-year cycle of Bitcoin, you get a bull market, and then you're left with mostly a year of maybe 80% retrace. You then, you know, you repeat the cycle again. And we've, we've really much um, attributed that to the halvening, um, the reduction of new coins being mined and sold onto the markets gets halved. So we get this impulse of supply shock. You know, there's less being dumped. And so the price runs up and... Um, natural fact, we've only had two cycles um, of four years. The first cycle wasn't a traditional cycle. If you look at the structure of the market, um, the miners didn't even sell. You know, they they were the. If you're in in 2009, um, as of 2009 January onwards, you could mine it, and everyone was doing everything they could to mine the coins, and they didn't sell because first you couldn't sell, there was no markets, and then when they were available, they still didn't sell. They were still mining because they were believers. So the first cycle was not marked by um, any mining sell pressure, um, and it was just sheer vertical wall for years um, because there was very little selling, and that marked our first cycle. Um, and it was not like any other, um, you know, cycle it was a very much an outlier it was vertical and then we had two what we typify as our normal four-year cycles where we had an accumulation range a sell down very hard sell down 80 90 percent or even more i think the first one was even um i don't know it was over 90 90 percent and um then we did it again we 
we sold down um, in the 2014 era. And then we had sold down in the 2018 era. Um, and everyone's thinking now it's going to happen again. Um, but if you were to look at, um, you know, like, remember the, 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 the two really um, typical textbook perfect four-year cycles happened powered by the halvening, which is a reduction of the mined coins being sold onto the market by half. Um, and 2017 was the last um, bullish impulse we had from that, um, where I think it was pristine, right? As of 2018, like um, we had our futures markets developed and BitMEX started to take the majority of the volume. Um, and then you look at the money that they make, BitMEX, of course, trades in Bitcoin, Bitcoin collateral, everything's Bitcoin. And so here BitMEX is making billions of dollars. Um, they're doing billions of dollars of trading per year, um, per day. Um, and um, of course, what are they doing with that money? Maybe some of it's held, but a lot of it is sold to cash to pay for the operational side of things and um you know the founders luxury expenses so um a lot of that um money is being um pulled out of the ecosystem sold from bitcoin to cash and that effectively is a tax on the network and then sold to fiat you know like i'm going to tax anyone who's trading on bitmex and i'm going to sell it to fiat it's a, it's a net sell pressure no different from mining mining is um a tax on the network, meaning that I'm diluting the supply. So it's a hidden tax on the network um, and also a fees tax on the network who's transacting. And I'm going to sell it back onto the market to pay for my mining overhead. So those two fundamentals are no different from each other. If you're a business that's earning Bitcoin on the network and you have to sell to fiat because you're paying salaries or you're, you're needing to do that, um, because we're not in a world where Bitcoin is the currency we do sell to us dollars to buy stuff um, that effectively is the supply side equation to bitcoin um, a constant supply side unlike investors buying and selling right um, this is a constant like the infrastructure of bitcoin is relying on miners exchanges and now etfs and you know all the complexities of the loans markets these are parts of the ecosystem which are businesses that um, for the ones that generate income in Bitcoin, that some of that is going to be sold. And so as the ecosystem develops further, we're going to have more and more of the infrastructural um, sell side. And their infrastructure is very simple in 2017 and earlier. The only infrastructure really of dominance was mining. Now, derivatives and auction, options, um, and even um, Grayscale ETF charging 2% fee is 4% of the mining network and sale pressure. So when you balance that out, like the halvening in, um, in what, in a year and a bit, two years? I forget. Um, that, is, that is now not going to be a halvening because you've got all this other complexity of the infrastructure um, that is making Bitcoins taxing the you know well taxing's harsh because they're providing services but they're earning and then they're selling so um the next impulse to drive the next um cycle so-called cycle is not going to be an impulse um it's already um, i'm calculating already the mining um is um 
equal match to the exchange's sell pressure um, on a kind of a low volume day. So um, we're in an era where what the exchanges are doing and their um, volumes, um, they're, uh, they're, they're kind of um, more dominant. And if, if it's highly volatile, say it's screaming upwards, then there's going to be more sell pressure from those exchanges. Um, and so the demand supply equations changed and anyone who looks at the chart closely will see how choppy it is and how um, we're not really templating um, the, the four-year cycle currently because you would have thought, you know, most people thought near end of this year would be end of this four-year cycle, but instead we had this, um, you know, a mini bear cycle pulling back to, from 60 to 30 and that's just taken all of the um, FOMO and um, highly speculative um, nature of the market out and um, we've had a total reset and things are quite cool right now yet we're gearing up for another run and I think we're going to see more of the same that we need a run and then, then the wind's going to be taken out of it and we might get you know a pullback and it might take four months to recover and it might be a 50% pullback or um, I think that's the the sign of things to come. We'll still have bull bear markets. I don't think they're going to be these four year macros. Um, you, I, the 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 four year thing is like um, I think of it like um, planets in orbit. Um, Bitcoin is a planet with a four year orbit, um, and that's created by its own it's kind of internal gravity. And now um, there's all these different forces pushing it, and and they're running on different cadences and eventually and what we're doing right now is breaking free um, i think we're breaking free from the four-year internal gravity of bitcoin and being pulled into orbit around traditional macro cycles which are you know 10 years or longer and um you know we'll still be in a cycle but it's in orbit with all the other large asset classes as this thing starts to get heavier and heavier and the traders and the investors um, start to reflect the traditional world Plan B, any thoughts? Yep. Um, <laughs> I, it, it's a definition question, of course, which we maybe should do, but, but it's, and it's a timing question as well. When is hyper, what is bit, uh, hyper Bitcoinization? Uh, what is a cycle? And, and when uh, will it happen? Because that's, that's for an investor, of course, the important thing. But yeah, I, I look at it a little bit different. From a pure investment point of view, I would say first that uh, drops of minus 50% and minus 80% will happen again, just because the volatility is in, in, in the market. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it, it's, it's a part of Bitcoin. It, it, no other market has this volatility. Uh, there are, you know, we had a minus 50% drop with a mining ban thing a couple of months ago that was well not not a really big event but but still a structural event and then but minus 50 percent right it, so i think things like fear and greed um in investors and in people uh, will be here to stay it uh, humans will not not be different and and they will uh freaking out again when uh <laughs> Maybe the U.S. bans it. Well, I don't think that's how, that, that's that's not not going to happen. But something will happen 
the introduction of the central bank digital currencies, the uh, um, uh, the tightening news of uh, know your customer and you can't exchange it to uh, to fiat anymore, whatever. Uh, some bug, some some. Uh, some big entities selling because they don't believe in it anymore. I don't know what, what the trigger will be, but there will be panic and people will freak out. Uh, liquidations will, will, will come and it will uh, drop down. Yeah, I, I think that that's part of the market. That's part of the charm as well of Bitcoin. So that, that will happen. That's, that's the one thing. So greed and fear are here to stay. Minus 50%. We just had that. Minus 80%. Wouldn't surprise me. Uh, the second thing is, yeah, I reason from uh, stores of value. So uh, alternative investments. If I have a, a large sum of money, uh, what are my uh, alternatives? So it's equity, it's bonds. And, and if you look at the commodity space or, or the, the non-financial asset space, it's uh, gold and it's real estate, basically. Diamonds maybe. But um, but yeah, and so so that's, of course, the stock to flow X model. Uh, I'm, I'm reasoning like an investor, like why would I put my money in, in, in real estate or, or why in gold or why in Bitcoin? And uh, there, there are several aspects to uh, what makes uh, a, a store of value or money uh, uh, better than another one. And, and one is divisibility, another is portability, you know, the classic uh, um, fungibility and scarcity. So I, I am not surprised at all that the real estate market is is just so much bigger uh, larger than that gold market and I, i'm also not surprised that that bitcoin is a little smaller than the gold market but as uh, as soon as as bitcoin as then after the next halving or, or really this halving we, we we should get really close to uh, to gold uh, market cap and after the next halving um it, it would really surprise me if, if a, an asset that is recognized by the market as a store of value that has, say, more than a trillion dollars in, 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 uh, in value, if, if, that, if that store of value with a larger, with bigger scarcity than gold would not at least be valued higher than, than gold. So somewhere between gold and, and real estate, 10 trillion and, and 100 trillion roughly. Um, so in that sense, I think differently about the four-year cycle, I think it's not so. The halving is important, not because of the miners selling the sell pressure from mine, because that's already uh, neg neglectable. Like like Willie said, I mean, a, a big exchange is maybe bigger than uh, than than some of the big miners, and 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 add to that the ETFs and uh, all the other sell pressure. So I think the selling pressure of the miner is not the thing. I think the fact that uh, the scarcity is larger than gold um, is, is a fact. And, and, and um, investors notice that, they, they know it. They kn investors know that if the, the, yeah, that if gold can be made, if there's a, a new, new gold mine, of course that takes years for, for me to make it operational, but it can be found a new, new source of gold uh, and then there will be a, a big supply. In fact, supply of gold has grown over the over the years. But with Bitcoin, you know for sure that it that will never be more. So it, it, basically, this is it. There's 19 or 18.8 million Bitcoins, um, and that and that approaches the 20 and 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 then the 21 million. But this is it. So so yeah, it is from a scarcity point of view and and alternative investments like 
like gold and, and real estate that I think that the halving still will be an impulse uh, for investors because they will recognize and see uh, Bitcoin for what it is, a, a really scarce asset and, uh, and, and valuable uh, at that. Then to conclude, um, I do think um, if the stock flow of Bitcoin will be bigger than even real estate, so so above 100, and that that basically is the case after next halving, but and 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 certainly after the halving in 2028, but let's say 2024, um, when we ex when we go over real estate, then it will be the most portable, most divisible, most fungible, and also the most scarce asset on on the planet. I think investors will see that, and that that combination will will probably mean that people are going to see Bitcoin not as a store of value, but as in money. And um, and that will trigger the hyper-Bitcoinization. So you could also say that Bit that Willie and I are saying the same thing. The hyper-Bitcoinization will be there eventually, but I think that will happen after the next halving and after uh, Bitcoin has at least a stock to flow of 100 and maybe maybe 200, but much bigger than, than real estate. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, like, I, I think they were looking at a um, pretty much a four year um, from now um, to really, you know, have Bitcoin as a main main contender on the world scene as a, a you know a money a new money or a, like definitely a large macro store of value. Um, yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because the next halving brings Bitcoin um, to the inflation rate below gold um and so it'll it gets pretty scarce and um yeah one more like i think the the when i talk about the cycles i think it's i think we, we agree on the destination um where it's going i think there's just different views on um the shape of the chart you know whether or not we have the the painful one year drawdown of 80 percent um and I think that that's the difference of it is is um, how and it, you know a lot of people have said does it invalidate stock to flow? Well, of course it doesn't because that's just based on the um, the scarcity valuation, which doesn't change. It's just how does the price sort of meander um, in its shape, um, which is you know it's a very you know important point for people who want to time the market and want to sell the top like. You know, I did plan B did for fifty percent, um, and it's, it's you know. interesting. Where it it, it 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 means we're back at the risk measure point, right? It's mm. it's how do we and and the options in there. So, uh, will there be a minus fifty or minus eighty percent drop again? It it's a risk thing basically. So that the end point is, I think, clear. It will be, it will the trend is clear. It will go up. But how will we get there? And will there be minus eighty percent drawdowns? That's that's the yeah uh, exactly. It's it's all about the risk. It's all the downside and um, how much you're willing to um, you know withstand. And I think there's more than that. It's like you know there's there's times when I'm trading and the trade is going against me, and I know it's going to swing back because I've got the fundamental data that's like very very strong and um, I'm like, well, it's going to swing back, but I will sell 
down my position to mitigate the downside risk. And the reason I do that is not because I don't believe I'm going to win this trade. The reason I do that is because I know ahead of time, if it goes below a certain level, um, I won't be able to stomach that level of um, downside whilst keeping a clear head. So I'm actually proactively, I know my risk tolerance pretty well, um, having traded for so long, and I'm going, I'm going to take some money off the table, downsize the risk so that when it, if it hits lower, I'm really going to make a less emotional, um, you know, I'm going to make a decision more rationally rather than out of fear. Um, so like, it's like that, you know, I think um, mm -hmm. it's not only understanding risk, but it is really much understanding how your behavior is going to going to happen. Like how, how is it going to play out with, um, with the road ahead? which is really important. Um, yeah. And one thing I'll be looking at like a hawk is the option markets that we talked about before, because the option markets is a risk market, is a volatility market. That's basically trading uh, volatility as an asset. And I pulled up the numbers right now for, for September options, September next year. So a year mm -hmm. from now, almost, um, the implied volatility is still above a 90% between 90 and 100% implied volatility and i i guess if if or when the markets because uh, both of us can be can be right right if if the but if the super cycle um the hyper bitcoinization sets in and everybody the market is is convinced it will it will go without those minus 50% or 80% drops then that implied volatility in the option markets will be the first signal the very first signal, because they are directly trading that as an asset, uh, where, where the implied volatilities will drop. That's that's what I think. And and uh, and right now they're at ninety hundred, so that's mm -hmm. that's that's really a, that's really high. It. Yeah. So so you know, I've seen I guess this the really market... interesting. I've seen this really interesting chart that uh, I think Dylan Leclerc posted, and it was essentially that you know the the German mark measured in gold chart, right? Flamby, you yeah. posted this before and you've overlaid Bitcoin's price with it. When yeah. you actually look at it in, in terms of like the non-smoothed out version, if you will, and, and what you see is like there was extreme volatility in that time. And so my kind of, my, my framework for moving, you know, Bitcoin moving forward and part of the reason why I, I mainly am just sitting in spot is because I think throughout this process, you'll see that increased volatility. It's almost like, you know, as a rocket ship is taking off and leaving orbit, you know, you have really violent movements before you finally get out of, um, you know, the orbit of, of the earth, you know, before you break through the atmosphere. I think it's very similar in the sense that you'll see really aggressive volatility because at some point, Bitcoin is basically measuring the debasement of the USD more than anything. I mean, I think you could say that it already yeah. is, but I think that, you know, eventually it'll just be reflective of that in the same way that, you know, gold was for the German mark in that chart. Well, I th I th yeah, I, th I think that's, I think it I look at it this, the same as you, as uh, that it will keep the volatility. But there's a lot of people, uh, very big investors, maybe maybe more than half of all the traditional investors in Bitcoin that see it differently. They see a, a larger market value, a larger market cap will bring lower volatility, like Amazon and Google. So you have some volatility in the beginning, just after the IPO and before the IPO, of course, but you can't see that. But just after, and if it dips like 80, 90% after that, the, the, the skies are clear and we can take off. And normally, right, in traditional markets, when, when you have a bull market and it takes off Amazon, Google, Facebook, whatever, 
the volatility will drop. Uh, but the scenario that you are describing, and, and I agree with you, is not like Amazon and Google. It's more like that 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 gold, uh, the German German Deutschmark uh, paper mark that that uh, just yeah, and 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 that, that that just died right. It died. Nobody wanted to have it, and the the sooner you could get could get rid of it, the better. And it just died. And I think, but that's that's a geopolitical thing. I think that will happen uh, to the dollar in the end as well, but not but not next year or or the year after. All right, guys. Last, I know we've been going on for a while. Willie, I know it's, it's getting a bit late for you. So uh, last question for both of you. I like to ask this, you know, to everybody who comes on the podcast. What milestones do you see as being the most impactful when we talk about the acceleration of hyper-Bitcoinization? Hyper so, you know, for me, I'll go first. Like the first two I think of is A, El Salvador, right? Uh, and kind of the, you know, the first domino in, in the whole, you know, game theory of, of you know, nation le state level adoption of Bitcoin. And then second, I also think the the politicalization of Bitcoin will be really interesting as well. I think you're first starting, you're, you're just starting to see that. We had a New York City, uh, New York City mayor that just got voted in. He's a big proponent of Bitcoin. And so I think when you start to see that, you know, you've got like Cynthia Loomis and, and some of these other folks. So I think when, when that really takes a force in the political landscape. I think that'll be another key transition point. Um, Willie, I guess we can start with you and then plan B. Yeah, I think it's very similar. Um, I mean, El Salvador is the first sovereign state to recognize it and even hold it in their um, treasury. And I think the next milestone is really to um, look at a wealthy um, industrialized nation that um, holds it in their sovereign wealth. Because um, I think that that's that's interesting because then you got a seat at the table um, at the sovereign level who are going to bet for Bitcoin <laughs> against like banning it or regulating it out. Um, I think that's important. That'll it'll add comfort to a lot of people coming in. And um, I I think um, in terms of a metric, um, I think the next milestone really is the distribution um, to have that distribution be less concentrated and start to reflect something akin to what we see within the fiat world and then further distribute i think that's i think that's one of the most important things everything within bitcoin is very reliant on decentralization and decentralization of the wealth base is just as important um, so right i think that that would be a kind of non-visible political milestone it's non-political milestone it's just a metric where we just cross and like now it's more spread than fiat and then you know hopefully it continues to spread and we have a better distribution of wealth in the world um i mean that's my hope um let's see how it works um currently it's more just concentrated but i'm seeing every year that the whales sell down um and eventually we'll have succession you know the the original rich Wales will eventually pass on in their inheritance to the next generation. And so, um, you know, I think we'll get there. Plan B. Yeah, predicting is difficult, but predicting far in the future is even more difficult. Um, mm. One thing I learned is that um, even two years into the future is so is so different is so difficult if, if you look back two years right if you look back at the end of 2019 i would have never predicted covid or the whole thing around that that's only that's not even two years ago so i think 
what, what will happen and what will be the big accelerator for Bitcoin and a lot more things with it is something we don't know yet. Something that will pop up next month, tomorrow, six months from now, that will alter the entire scene. It could be climate change. It could be uh, a cyber security leak thingy uh, scenario scenario with with attacks and then all the banks uh, all, the, all the money is gone and of course bitcoin is the only network that that cannot be it uh, hacked and attacked uh, it, it's something we cannot even think of right now that will that will mm. that that will trigger that hyper bitcoinization do you think about tail risks yeah tail risks like 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 i think it's a tail risk that bitcoin doesn't succeed i think it's more like when I mean, it's already at a level of success where it's going to get to the next level next level yeah um but the tail risk is if something breaks and then the next day it's gone yeah 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 tail, yeah the tail risk yeah there, there 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 is tail risk but i agree with you I, how, how i see it is bitcoin is the better money um uh, it's the better store of value. It's it's mathematically, thermodynamically, it's the best there is. So, it 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 must succeed. It has to succeed. It can be stalled. It can be uh, sabotaged by by political things, by by military things. But it is physically or thermodynamically. It's mathematic. It's the best thing there is. So so. It would be like like saying like like keep keep saying that the the, the Earth is flat while it is round. Um, mm. One day, <laughs> you cannot you cannot hold that ball under the under the water. It has it has to pop up. So I I, I fully agree. Bitcoin w- will go higher and higher. And there there is still risk, but uh, I think it's but we a, can't a, see a, it by definition, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It was what's the saying that the biggest risks are the ones you don't know, right? Yeah, yeah. That's it. And that's the same is true for the biggest opportunities. So I think the next trigger, yeah, it's mm. very, it will pop up. One day we'll wake up and then there it is. Changes the whole world. Exactly. Not not far away, really, with the rate of progress. True. Well, guys, thank you so much. We're going on almost two hours here. So um, you know, I just wanted to say, I really appreciate you guys coming on and this was a blast. I've been, you know, I had a hard time sleeping last night cause I was so excited for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this was pretty epic. So, I mean, I don't think you guys really need to plug in your Twitter, but if you want to give any, you know, like closing remarks or Willie, if you want to plug in your newsletter plan B, I know you now have an, another Twitter account with all your different content on there. So if you want to just give a quick plug into some of those things, uh, Willie go first and then plan B. Oh, yeah, most people know I'm on Twitter, Woonomic. Um, yeah, just I publish stuff there, um, research, thoughts, musings. Um, and that's really it. You know, I have a newsletter. Um, you can subscribe if you want. It's on my profile page. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm like, I pretty much do a lot of my research and put it out for free just for fun. Um, yeah, so plan B. Yeah, the, the Twitter accounts, everybody knows that, I guess. Uh, but I'm, um, yeah, after that last interview with Pomp, where uh, YouTube took out the, uh, banned the video, deleted the video, and took out his channel, I'm, I'm a wow. bit more afraid that ha- might happen to me. And, and quite frankly, with the, uh, with the uh, size of account, the number of followers that I have right now, I have daily 
uh, attacks, right? People reporting me trying to take my channel down, uh, my Twitter account down. So we have a second channel. It's uh, at 100 trillion euro, E-U-R, at 100 trillion euro. It's Louise. She's my uh, COO. So in case of emergency, if something happens, if uh, my account is gone, uh, she'll be the first line of contact and we'll have a website too. The website is planbtc.com. That will be a point of uh, communication in a, uh, in a case of emergency. And of course, all the uh, interviews and articles are on planbtc.com as well. Hey, and, and Will, thanks for organizing this epic uh, talk. We should do it again. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, this, was, this was a blast. Uh, I'm definitely going to have to go back and, and re-listen after we edit it and stuff. But thank you so much again, guys, and uh, take it easy.